Well, as we look at Exodus this morning, we are uh, creeping forward in the story by uh, another eight verses. So we will reread um, something that we've read a couple times now, Exodus 12, 1 to 13, where the Passover celebration is introduced by God. God gives his people instructions for how they are to take the lamb and put the blood over the doors. Um, But then we'll skip over the the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and we'll read verses 21 to 28, um, where again instructions are given for taking of the lamb and putting its blood over the doors. Uh, After that, Kathy will come and read for us from 1 Corinthians 5, 7, telling us that Christ is that Passover lamb. And so what we want to look at this morning is how this blood that was put over the door frames of the homes is now the blood of Jesus Christ that is put over our very hearts and how through that blood we have deliverance, we have safety, we have rescue from the wrath that is to come. So, Paul, if you want to come up and begin our reading from Exodus 12, and then Matt will come up, and then again, lastly, Kathy will come for us. Exodus 12, 1-13. through 13. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he is in his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, and on the two doorposts, 
Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Well, as we look at Exodus 12 this morning, my aim in this message is to raise your confidence level in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the word of God to bolster your faith in these things. Because clearly this is a story of the word of the Lord coming true, and it is a story of the blood of the Lamb delivering the people from judgment. Now before the night when the destroyer passed through Egypt, the Israelites were to put blood over their doors. Because as God says in Exodus 12, 23, it says, Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So this, in other words, was a matter of life and death. If you have the blood over your door, then you're safe. If you do not have the blood over your door, then you die. It is as simple and as serious as that. Now clearly, therefore, it is critical for us to know whether the blood is over our doors. Amen? Is the destroyer going to come into our house and kill us while we sleep? Or will he pass by so that we will live through that night of death? Whether you put that blood over your door, I am arguing, and this text states, comes down to one thing. Do you really believe that the blood will work? Do you believe sufficiently to put that blood over your door so that you will indeed be safe? Or do you not believe that the blood can possibly protect you and therefore you don't bother to follow the instructions that God lays out? Because if you don't think that the blood has this kind of power, then clearly you won't bother listening to God. And yet if you do think the blood has this kind of power, then surely you will not hesitate to put the blood over your door for your own protection and for the protection of your family. Now, of course, whether you believe the blood has this kind of power does come back to an even more basic question, and that even more basic question is the question of, do you believe God? Do you believe God when he says that the destroyer will pass through? And do you believe him when he tells you? that the blood will protect you. 
Maybe you don't understand why the blood really matters. Why does God need the blood? It doesn't totally make sense to you. You aren't really sure that the blood has that kind of power. But if you believe the word of God, if you do not dare to doubt God, then you will do it anyways, right? Even if you're not totally sure about how this all works, and even if it doesn't make total sense to you, you're going to obey God, and you're going to put that blood over your door. Now, before going any further, let's be clear that I'm not talking about us all killing lambs and putting the blood of lambs over our doors, right? We don't need to do that today. I mean, if you really want to do that, I think you can. I don't think it'll help you spiritually at all. I know there might be some ordinance against it, so maybe I, I wouldn't recommend it. But either way, we don't need to put the blood of the lamb over our door. As we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover lamb, and he has been sacrificed. And so it is his blood that we are to apply. And we don't apply his blood to the doors of our houses, right? We apply his blood to our very hearts, to our very souls. And so that is the metaphor that I want you to see and to keep in mind throughout this message, that the lamb that they were to kill is Jesus Christ. And the door that they were to put the blood on is our very hearts, is our very souls. So that's where we're going, and that's how we see this passage now in light of the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. So again, we have this even more fundamental question to trusting in the power of the blood, namely, do we believe God? Again, maybe you don't understand God's instructions here. Maybe you don't even like what he says about the blood. Maybe you think it's kind of mean that a lamb has to die for God to pass over. But regardless of how you think about that, if you believe God and if you care about your life, then surely you will take the precaution that God tells you to take. Now, the Israelites here in this story had little reason to doubt God at this point, did they not? I mean, they had just endured nine God-made disasters that had devastated the whole land of Egypt. Indeed, in four of them, they had even seen the disaster come upon the Egyptians, but God spare their own land, the land of Goshen. And so, surely they had no reason to doubt the word of the Lord. Surely they had no reason to doubt that God was coming and that he was going to do just what he said he would do and that they needed to follow his instructions. They had seen the river turned into blood. They had seen frogs and gnats overwhelm the land. They had seen flies infest the land with their own land being spared. After that, they saw livestock die with their own livestock being spared. Then they saw boils break out on man and beast. They saw hail destroy crops. Then they saw locusts come and eat the rest of the crops that remained. And finally, they saw a darkness fall upon the land that was so dark that it could even be felt. Again, with their own land being spared. They had light in their own homes. So they had seen the power of God. And they knew that God would do what he said he would do. When Moses would go into Pharaoh and would give the warning, and of course, Pharaoh would not believe Moses, he says, no, I don't know who this God is, and I don't believe that he can do that. God would nevertheless come, and he would fulfill the word that he had spoken through Moses. And so the people had learned a lesson not to doubt the word of God. If any people in all of history 
ever had reason to fear God, to believe God, to do what he said, surely it was the Israelites here in Egypt after these first nine plagues. And so I have no doubt that when God gave these instructions for how to select a lamb, how to prepare it, how to put the blood over their doors, that all the people followed these instructions very carefully. When they were told to get the lamb on the 10th day of the month, I'm sure that every mother or father went out in the streets looking for the spotless lamb that they were instructed to find. I'm sure they made sure to take good care of that lamb for the next four days until they had to slaughter it. And I'm sure that just as God told them that they were only to take one lamb per household, or if there wasn't, if the lamb was too much for a household, then to go to their nearest neighbor. I'm sure every mother was going to the next door neighbor, knocking on the door, saying, hey, uh, the one lamb is too much for us. Is it too much for you? Do you want to come together so that we can have the right amount of sacrifice the night of the Passover? You see, even though these are all very practical instructions, even seemingly mundane, you know, counting out servings of lamb for each person, these were critically important responsibilities that the Israelites were to keep. Again, this was life or death for them. And so they were careful and they listened. And so at the end of the day, they may, have well very, they may very well have not understood all that they were doing, I'm sure they did not understand all the symbolism that was involved. They surely did not understand how this was pointing to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, or anything like that. But nevertheless, God had spoken, and so they listened. They knew that their lives depended on it. And so again, we have this question, do we believe God? Now, I'm sure that for us here in this room this morning, it is more difficult for us to believe God than the people of Israel back in that time. We haven't just seen nine plagues devastate the country around us with us somehow miraculously being spared. Indeed, much of our modern day and age ever since the Enlightenment has been built upon the premise that God is not real or God is far off, God is not necessary, God is not needed. And so today we live in what Christian philosopher Charles Taylor called a secular age. We live in an imminent frame of reference, he says, where belief in God is no longer the default position. And he's in competition with a whole host of other options of things to believe in, ideologies to have, philosophies to hold. These other options make belief in God seem implausible to us and sometimes even unimaginable to those who don't have any type of religious background or faith. And even us who believe in God, it can often make us kind of haunted by doubt as we see all the reasons not to believe all around us. Taylor says that we, all of us in our culture, have been made into a fragile people because our beliefs have been made fragile. We are caught between This kind of modern disenchantment of the world where everything can be explained by math and science. Everything is thought of in terms of matter and motion and not having any spiritual reality. And yet, we as a people are also still haunted by transcendence. We're just unable to shake this notion that there is something larger, someone bigger than us. And as a result... We moderns find ourselves with a sense of perpetual unease. 
Not really knowing what to believe, not knowing what's true. And even when we've found a home for our belief, we still have this uncertainty, this percentage of doubt that maybe we're wrong, maybe we're mistaken. And so if you are here this morning and you believe in God as I do, then you're probably still, like me, sometimes prone to wonder, am I really believing the right thing? Is the God that I believe in really the true God? Is the the word that he gives us in the scriptures really the true word? Is this all just made up? And in that way, I wonder if the better analogy for our own day, thinking about the word of God coming true, is not so much the people of Israel on the eve of the Passover, but rather Noah when he was building his ark in the days before the flood. Because the scripture tells us in those days, the culture around Noah was not thinking much about God. They had not just seen the power of God on display. No, they thought that they could do whatever they wanted. They thought God was not near. They thought that God was absent. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Unaware. That describes our day very well, does it not? People today, including too often we ourselves, are unaware of the reality of God. Unaware of the fact that the judgment of God is coming. And as a result, the people of our culture, they're doing what Jesus says people were doing in Noah's day. Matthew 24, they were eating and drinking, having a good time, throwing parties, enjoying the creation while not thinking at all of the creator. And what that means is that we ourselves must be more like Noah, the faithful one in the midst of his generation. Hebrews 11.7 tells us about the faith of Noah. It says that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so, we look to events as yet unseen, as it says that Noah did. Indeed, sometimes we might feel very foolish, as I'm sure Noah did, as we proclaim to the world events as yet unseen. We proclaim to the world that the Son of Man is returning, that he is returning with his angels, and he is returning in judgment. And when he comes, you will need a shelter. You will need an ark. You will need blood over your door. And so we live in reverent fear, as Moses did. In reverent fear, it says, he constructed the ark. And so we live in this day where belief in God for so many seems so impossible. And yet we have this calling, like Noah, to build this ark, to shelter ourselves under the blood of Jesus Christ, to go into our homes before the angel of death, the destroyer, passes over and kills the wicked. God has promised a way out. He has promised a deliverance. But if we are going to experience that deliverance, we must believe God. We must believe that the day is coming. And we must believe that he has indeed given us deliverance, that he has given us a way out. Otherwise, we will perish as the Egyptians did. 
We will perish as the world around Noah perished because they did not believe the warnings that Noah gave. And yet I want to come back to the blood because clearly God has something very particular in mind when he instructed Israel to put blood over their doors. After all, we have seen that God, even in Egypt, was able to distinguish between Israel and between Egypt, was he not? Again, there were four plagues that demonstrated that God knew where Israel lived and where Egypt lived. He knew who was Israelite, who was Egyptian. Indeed, God could even distinguish between what was Israelite cattle and what was Egyptian cattle. So God did not need anything to mark the doors of the Israelites' homes. He knew where they were. And so why did he say that you have to put blood over your doors if you are to be delivered? You have to put blood over your doors if you're going to be safe. Well, as the New Testament tells us, these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so the first thing that this tells us, and the first thing that it was to remind Israel of, is that both Israel and Egypt were under sin. You see, this was not a case of good guys over here, bad guys over here. As if God could come as the holy God, the perfect God, and only kill those who were wicked, and all the righteous people would be safe. You see, what the blood over the doors tells us is that no one was sufficiently righteous to be saved by their own righteousness. Just in a couple of verses later, we are told in Exodus 12.30 that there was not a house where someone was not dead. And so it was the case, even in Israel, there was not a house where someone was not dead. Either the firstborn dies or the lamb dies. Those are the options because God is a holy God and all of us are under sin. When God comes into our presence, when God comes into our presence, either sin is killed or we ourselves are killed. There is no other option. And so the lamb having to be killed should have reminded the Egyptian, or sort of reminded the Israelites, thinking back to the very beginning of their scriptures, thinking back to Genesis, that God promised to Adam that in the day that he sinned, in the day that he disobeyed God, he would surely die, and that death itself was the wages of sin. And therefore, if God was going to come into Egypt then anyone who had sinned was deserving of death, just like Adam was, just like the rest of humanity was from Adam on. And God was giving them a way of escape. He was giving them a substitute. He was saying that this lamb can die. And if this lamb dies, then you don't have to. And so both Egypt and Israel were under sin. And it also reminds us that the penalty of sin is death. The next thing that the lamb shows us and the blood of the lamb shows us is that God had prepared a perfectly measured sacrifice. God had prepared a perfectly measured sacrifice. Again, this preparation of the lamb, indeed even how many people to a lamb was not some slipshod thing. It was not something that could kind of hastily be taken care of at the last second. 
Indeed, when God gave his instructions, they were to get the lamb into their home a full four days before the Passover actually happened. So God wanted them to be intentional and deliberate about measuring out how many people to a lamb, killing the lamb in the right way, cooking the lamb in the right way. Everything had to be perfectly done. Again, the scripture tells us that there was to be one lamb per household, or if a household was too small, then more than one household was to join together so that everybody would have a share and that none would be left over. Scripture tells us in 12 verse 5 that the lamb was to be without defect, okay? So you couldn't just go and grab any old lamb from the flock. You couldn't grab the lamb that you really didn't want to hold on to anymore. You had to grab a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, Scripture says. Third, there was the matter of timing. This lamb was to be killed at twilight. You couldn't just kill it right away and put the blood over your door and hope that that power lasted for days and days, right? You had to kill it on the 14th day of the month at twilight, so before the sun went down. And then it even specifies where and how you put that blood over your door. You use hyssop, and you take the hyssop, and you dip it in the blood, and you put it on the lintel and on the doorposts. And then lastly, it says that anything left over had to be burned. And so in this way, God is showing us that the sacrifice of the lamb is again something that is carefully prepared and something that is carefully measured to those who need redemption. So again, as we look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, this reminds us that we All humanity are sinners and under the penalty of death. And because we are sinners and because we are under the penalty of death, we ourselves need a sacrifice. And what does Scripture teach us about the coming of Jesus Christ except that he was this perfectly measured sacrifice? Scripture tells us that Jesus himself was prepared from before the foundation of the world for our salvation and that we ourselves were chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus died upon that cross, he died especially for all who were his. His blood was perfectly measured out that you and I would be saved, that we would be rescued. Scripture tells us that Jesus was not just any old person who could die for the sins of the world, but he was the sinless God-man. He was the spotless lamb. He was the one who perfectly rejected all the temptations of Satan, who lived perfectly for God throughout his life, who did not at all deserve to die, whom no one would have ever chosen to die, except God chose him to die in order that we could have the sacrifice that would be perfect and sufficient for us, even as the lamb was perfect and sufficient for the Israelites. So Jesus was perfectly measured. He was without defect. And scripture teaches us that he will be enough for us forever and ever and ever. That there is never any amount of sacrifice that we could need. There's never any amount of extra goodness that we need. Indeed, there's no kind of sufficiency or meaning or joy that we need that Jesus himself cannot provide for us. He gives us all that we need. 
And so in this way, God had the people of Israel prepare this lamb as a sacrifice so that this lamb, this blood over their doors, could point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ so that we would know the blood that we need if we are to be saved. And God himself provided that lamb. God provided that blood that we all need if we are going to live. And so my plea to you, my plea to everyone here this morning, again, is put that blood over your door. That it is only by that blood that you are going to be saved. Now, again, we can't put the blood of Jesus Christ on a physical doorframe, right? We don't have the blood of Jesus Christ in our hands. And if we did, putting it over the door would not be very beneficial to us. So how do we put the blood of Jesus Christ upon our hearts? How do we receive him as the perfect sacrifice? Well, here the call of the New Testament is 100% clear. When Jesus came, he came preaching this message. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he sent out the apostles to preach the good news, he sent them out preaching this message, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. How do we put the blood of Jesus Christ upon our hearts? Beloved, we repent and we believe. We believe God. We believe that Jesus Christ really is that perfect sacrifice, that his blood truly was shed, and that in three days he truly did rise again from the dead, and that he did all of this for me. That his blood has been shed and has been placed upon me so that now I am not standing in my own righteousness. I am not standing in my own goodness. I am not proving myself to God. Rather, Jesus has already proven himself to God, and I take shelter under him. So in the same way, the people of Israel were instructed to stay in their houses with that blood over their door. Beloved, so we have a daily task of staying under that blood of Jesus Christ. Do not come out from under that blood. How do you come out from under that blood? You come out from under that blood by once again returning to rely upon your own works. Relying upon your own goodness, relying upon your own merits, thinking that you can clean yourself up before God, thinking that you can do enough to please God. That is how you exit from under the blood of Jesus and stand in your own righteousness, which is, in actuality, your own sin, because none of us is righteous. And so we must remind ourselves daily that we cannot please God. We cannot be righteous in ourselves. We are sinners to the core. And there is only one way to be saved. And that is through the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our hearts. And so just plead the blood. Admit that you are a sinner. Admit that you yourself are not righteous And take upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Take upon the reputation of Jesus Christ. It is being offered to you right now. If you will just receive it. If you will just accept it. Escape your own pride. Your own accomplishments. Your own resume. And say, Lord, I need you. And I need your perfect blood. Because my life is not enough. 
Because I am desperately wicked and I need a savior. I need atonement. And it will be given to you, beloved. Now, just so you can see the sufficiency of this blood, I owe this illustration to D.A. Carson in a sermon that he preached, but I think this illustration will help you see just how critical this blood is for your salvation. So in this illustration that Carson gives, he says to picture two Jews on the eve of the Passover. Carson's illustration, he says, one's named Smith, one's named Brown. Okay, not very Jewish names, but two Jews. One named Smith, one named Brown, the eve of the Passover. And he says, Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses, so we don't need to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and dabbed the two doorposts with blood and put the blood over your lintel? Haven't you done that? Aren't you all packed and ready to go, just like Moses said? Aren't you going to eat the whole Passover meal with your family? And Smith says, well, of of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think about all the things that have happened around here recently, with all the flies and the river turning to blood. It's all pretty awful. And now there's the threat of the firstborn being killed. It's all right for you. You have three sons. I've only got one son. And I love my Charlie. And the angel of death passing through tonight. I know what God says. I've I've put the blood over my door, but it's Pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night's over. And then the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And so that night, the angel of death passes through the land of Egypt. And the question is, which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity of their faith, where the clarity of the faith that was exercised. The angel of death passes over because he sees the blood of the lamb over their door. That's what silences the accuser. That's what assuages our guilt. That's what gives us redemption before God. It is the blood of the lamb. Again, not our perfection, beloved. Not the power of our faith. And so maybe you are here this morning and maybe you do have doubts about God. Maybe you're not totally sure that he's real. Maybe you have doubts about this person, Jesus Christ. You're not totally sure that he did all that this book describes that he did. You're not totally sure. But beloved, do you hear the warning of God coming from me right now that there is a day of judgment coming? And if you do not put this blood upon your heart, then you will be destroyed. If you believe that, then just leap to Christ right now. Humble yourself, admit your sin, repent of it, and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you may not do it perfectly. You may not have 100% bold, confident faith, but do that and you will be saved. So trust in Christ now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for doing what we ourselves could not do, for giving us a perfect sacrifice so that we would not be killed in our sin. Father, I pray that you will help us to feel, help us to see the weight of what you have done, both so that our joy will increase in the rescue that we've been given and so that our love for you will increase in seeing the price that you yourself have paid so that we ourselves will get the joy and will grow in holiness and in nearness to you forever and ever. God, we thank you for shedding the blood of your Son and ask you to apply that blood to our hearts even now as we cry out to you in prayer.